you'd turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 12. I uh, originally was planning on making it all the way to verse 19, but through my study, uh, we're going to make it to verse 3. Next week, we're going... <laughs> Next week, we're, we'll go from verse 4 to verse 19, but I, I didn't want to skip over just the significant events in these first three verses. Um, We're going to look at the death of James, one of the 12 apostles. And we're just going to ask some very common questions that I think we all struggle with. And uh, I'm nowhere, I'm not going to get close to covering this topic in death, but there are just a few Applications and thoughts that I want to draw out um, specifically around the death of James and or more broadly uh, why God ordains uh, his servants to die as we would say it uh, before their time. And of course, uh, when studying this topic, I was drawn to uh, the story of John Payton. I know I've talked about him before. I'm going to quote, I have several lengthy quotations from his autobiography. Uh, Payton was the Scottish Presbyterian minister who uh, was a missionary um, in the South Pacific to the uh, New Hebrides Islands. Um, when he was very young, he felt uh, this call to the New Hebrides. And uh, when he was just 15 years old, the very first missionaries ever arrived uh, to these islands in the South Pacific. Their names were John Williams and James Harris. Uh, They were part of the London Missionary Society, and they had traveled from England to Australia and then over to the New Hebrides, and they were so excited and zealous and ready to take uh, the gospel to the natives on this island. And once they stepped on shore, almost immediately after getting out of their boat and touching the sand, they were killed and then eaten by the inhabitants of the island. John Payton was 15 years old when he heard of this. And those were the exact people in the exact island that he felt called by the Lord to evangelize. And so the time of preparation began. Uh, he, uh, he, as he was older, he moved to Glasgow, Scotland, and he was trained in both theology and medicine, um, disciplines he would need to be familiar with if he's alone on an island. Uh, he also uh, began doing urban missionary work among the poor in Glasgow. He did this for 10 years. He would have weekly scripture classes where hundreds of the unchurched poor were taught the Bible. He did this for 10 years with incredible success. So much success that he, he had a very hard time leaving Scotland because uh, fellow Christians there looked at what he was doing in Glasgow and said, how can you leave this? And yet he felt called to leave. You know, I thought that kind of the spring and summer of 2017 was a big year for me because I finished seminary 
and then Luvi was born and then in May, and then one week later, I walked at graduation, and then two months later, I was ordained. Uh, John Payton, in 1858, he's 33 years old. He's ordained in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Ten days after ordination, he gets married to a wonderful woman named Mary Ann Robson. And then two weeks after his wedding, he and his bride get on a boat to sail from Scotland to Australia and then on to the New Hebrides. So you've got ordination, marriage, and setting sail all within maybe the span of a month. So you have all this preparation. He's married. He's ordained. They're on their way. They leave Scotland April the 16th, and they arrive in the New Hebrides On November 5th of that same year, so they're on a boat for seven months. During that time, Mary becomes pregnant. And you have these newlyweds with an unshakable sense of God's call. They arrive on the island of Tana in the New Hebrides. They quickly build a small house that will serve for the base of their ministry. Mary actually... Uh, very quickly acquires a group of seven or eight women that she is teaching and instructing out of that house. They're nesting and getting it ready and comfortable for the coming baby. And you just think, all right, they've, they've arrived. They're finally here. All, all the experiences they've gone through, all the training, all the education, the ministry and teaching in Glasgow, the hours spent in prayer, those seven months sailing, and they are here on the ground, and they're young, they're in excellent health, they're wishing for long lives so that they can pour themselves out over many years doing the Lord's work, seeking the salvation of those who were lost. But that was not the Lord's plan. Peyton writes in his autobiography, quote, My dear young wife, Mary Ann Robson, landed with me on Tana on the 5th of November, 1858, in excellent health and full of all tender and holy hopes. On the 12th of February, 1859, God sent us our firstborn son. For two days or so, both mother and child seemed to prosper, and our island exile thrilled with joy. But the greatest of sorrows was treading hard upon the heels of that joy. My darling's strength showed no signs of rallying. She had an attack of ague. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. I looked it up. It's malaria or some other illness where you get a fever and just shake. She had an attack of that and fever. On the third day or so thereafter, it returned and attacked her every second day with increasing severity for a fortnight. Diarrhea ensued and symptoms of pneumonia with slight delirium at intervals. And then in a moment, although unexpectedly, she died on the 3rd of March. Peyton continues, To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness... The dear baby boy, whom we had named after her father, 
was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. So they arrive November 5th. Baby is born February 12th. Mary dies March 3rd, and their newborn son, Peter, dies March 20th. And what I was left with was thinking about all this preparation, all this labor, ready to pour out long lives in sharing Christ with the inhabitants of this island. What happens? Four months in, his wife dies. She spent more time on the boat than she did on the island. And then when you think it can't get any worse, less than three weeks later, this month-and-a-half-old little boy dies as well. And John Payton is going to be ministering alone on this island for the next four years. What's the natural question that we ask after hearing something like that? Why? Why, Lord? In, In the first place, why would you allow the very first missionaries, John Williams and James Harris, to travel all that way only to be killed in moments? It took them probably seven, eight months to arrive, and then they're on the island less than seven or eight minutes. After all the preparation that John Payton went through and his wife, Why would you allow this to happen? They had so much left to live. That's what we think, isn't it? So many years that she could have dedicated to you. Why would you take her and this child out of the world so early? We, these are questions that we don't understand. Very pragmatically speaking, we could say, Lord, if you want the best ROI, Leave them on this island for many years. They can take all that education and the experience, their ministry in in Glasgow, and use it over many decades on these islands. Evangelize as many people as possible. But that's not what the Lord does. You know, these are questions that Surely all of us have asked before in our own lives. We have known and loved people who were taken before their time, as we would say. We've known and loved people who were doing incredible things. Maybe incredible work for the Lord. Incredible work serving others. And they're taken early. And this bothers us. It, it really bothers us. Lord, why would you allow this man to get married two weeks before getting on a boat if she was just going to die of the fever four months in? Why would you allow this couple to conceive and bear a son if he was just going to lose his mother and die himself? Why bring this man all the way here and then take the most precious things from him? I mean, can we be honest and say it? That just seems like such a waste. It makes no sense. 
Well, the reason I remind you of that story is because I believe it parallels the events in today's text. The church is spreading and growing. There's zeal for the gospel. Thousands of people are coming to faith. A great missionary work is about to begin. Paul is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. There's all this momentum, this excitement. And when suddenly, for no good reason, a wicked politician executes a major leader in the church and then throws another into prison with every intention of killing him also. And for me, when I get to Acts 12, it's so easy to just skip over these first three verses so quickly and get on to the the miraculous rescue that happens to Peter that we will get to next week. It's so easy to skip over this death of James, who's one of the twelve. He's not someone insignificant. And he's young in his thirties. And he's able-bodied and he's talented with so many fruitful years ahead and so much work to be done. His, his Lord that discipled him said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. If that's true, Lord, why would you take James here? That's the topic we're going to explore today, a hard topic, but an important topic. Topic, And I'm going to give a couple thoughts on it. Again, this is not going to be comprehensive, just a few thoughts. But before we look at those, let's pray before we read our text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us grace this morning. That grace to see your hand working even in the midst of sorrow and hardship. Father, would you open our eyes more fully to see who you are and to trust in you? And Father, would you give us the grace that in such hard times we would flee to you and lean in all the closer? Lord, where else would we go? Be with us during this time and bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So last week we finished chapter 11, uh, looking at the planting of the church in Antioch and Barnabas goes and finds Saul and brings Saul to Antioch so that he can teach the church and turn those converts into disciples. And about the same time, 
Luke tells us. Luke isn't, he's not overly specific in the timeline. He just says about the same time, another season of persecution begins in Jerusalem at the hands of Herod. And a part of this persecution is that James is killed with the sword. He's presumably beheaded. And then Peter is arrested and put into prison. And the only, thing, the only reason why Peter is not killed instantly is because it's the, uh, the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll get to that next week. One of the first kind of practical things we need to ask is exactly who we're talking about. Uh, Has Herod been one of those figures for you as you're reading through the Bible? You're like, I thought this guy died. Why are we talking about him again? He just keeps, he'll disappear and then come back and disappear and come back. Well, there, there are multiple Herods in the Bible. It can get confusing. I'll briefly go through them with you. You've got Herod the Great, probably most well known He's the part, he uh, plays a part in the Christmas story. He's the one who uh, tries to trick the wise men into telling him where uh, the Savior is. Uh, The wise men escape. Herod gets angry, uh, kills every uh, two-year-old little boy and under in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. Okay, that's his name. Then you have his son, Herod Archelaus, who takes the throne after the great dies. And we see uh, him mentioned in Matthew 2. Mary and Joseph and Jesus return from Egypt. But they, uh, Joseph is warned to go to Nazareth and not Bethlehem because Herod Archelaus is a lot like his father. Then you have Herod Antipas. He is the Herod who kills John the Baptist. Remember that narrative? He's that Herod. He's the one that Jesus calls the fox in Luke 13. That's Herod Antipas. And then in today's text, we meet Herod Agrippa I. This is the grandson of the great. And we'll see his end, uh, how he dies at You could skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 23, and you can see how he dies. And then another Herod pops up, Agrippa II. In Acts 25 and 26, he is uh, the Herod who questions Paul when Paul is imprisoned before going to Rome. So lots of Herods. The one we're talking about today is Agrippa I. And since we've covered all the Herods, we just about need to do the same with James's, don't we? We're told that James is killed by Herod. But then if you look in chapter 12, verse 17, you'll see Peter says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. So Peter is saying, go tell James what happened. But then earlier in the chapter, James is killed. So we need to make our distinction between our James's as well. Well, The James who is mentioned in verse 17, the one where Peter says, go tell him the news. That is James, the brother of the Lord or half-brother of Jesus. James the just, 
the one who authors the book of James. He's an important leader in the church. He's the one, Peter says, go and tell him the news. Then you have James, the son of Alphaeus, who is one of the 12 apostles. And here's all we really know about James, the son of Alphaeus. His name was James. His father was named Alphaeus. And he was one of the 12. Besides that, Not a whole lot we know. So you have James, the brother of the Lord, who writes the book of James. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, who's one of the twelve. And then you have the James who is killed in Acts 12. And we have a clue here. We are told that he is James, the brother of John. You remember these two from the Gospels. They're the ones that Jesus nicknames the sons of thunder. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're the ones who, in in Mark's gospel, we're told that they ask Jesus, and I think it's in Matthew's gospel, that their mother asks Jesus, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can my boys sit at your right and sit at your left hand? That's James and John. And we know that we see here James will die early. John will live into his 90s. He'll go to the island of Patmos where he'll be exiled, where he'll write the book of Revelation. He also, before that, will write the Gospel of John. But these two brothers, James and John, the sons of thunder, you know, they were part of this inner circle. You know, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus will take a smaller group at times. Peter. James and John. Those three go with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they see Jesus transfigured. And they hear the voice from heaven. And they see Moses and Elijah. And Peter's like, hey, can we just stay up here forever? James and John are there. On the night Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus took his disciples into Gethsemane, he takes Peter and James and John separately to go with him to pray. That's the James we're talking about here. Not only one of the twelve, but one of the three. Peter, James, John. And here in this text, Peter is locked up. And James is executed. And we have every reason to believe that this death was seen as a major loss to the early church. One of the sons of thunder. One of the three closest to the Lord who is passionate and energetic and zealous and courageous and gifted is killed in his 30s. Now we see why Herod did it. We see in verse 3, because it pleased the Jews. You know, Herod was a pandering politician thought, well, I'll get one leader of this sect of Judaism and kill them and then see how they like it. And then if, if my approval rating goes up, then I'll kill another one, Peter. You know, the Jewish people were notoriously hard to govern. They were always rebelling They couldn't stand the fact that Gentiles, these inferior, non-chosen people, were ruling over them. 
these dirty, unclean Gentiles were their overlords. It really bothered them. But what, what's one of the biggest struggles of an empire? It's keeping everybody together, keeping everyone happy. So if the Jews were happy, Rome would be happy. And Herod wanted his bosses in Rome happy, so he pandered to the Jews. He, he actually had a Jewish grandmother, and he would play the part. I'm the, I'm, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. He would go to the temple, and he would read the Torah, just as the kings of old were instructed to do. He pandered to them. And then he saw this sect that was making everyone unhappy, causing trouble. And so he had his guards scoop up James, kill him, and then he waits for the reaction. And when he sees that they like it, he plans on doing the same to Peter after Passover. And we'll see the rest of that story next week. But what do we do with this? This... This topic of suffering, and especially the Lord taking someone when maybe there's so many years ahead. Again, this is not going to be comprehensive. There are just three specific things I'm going to point out. The first is that we should expect suffering. As believers, we should expect suffering. And I should say we should expect suffering for now. Our Lord said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That was a promise of suffering. He says, affliction or persecution arises because of my word. He talks about this in the parable of the sower. One of the seeds sprouts and affliction and persecution arises because of my word. And this seed is scorched and withers but it still arises. He says, they will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. These are all things that the Lord tells his disciples. And yet we are surprised too often when suffering comes into our community and our home. But if we simply look to our Lord and the words that he spoke Suffering should be an expectation. To be in union with Christ is also to be in union with his suffering. Now, of course, our suffering and our crosses do not approach the magnitude of the suffering that he experienced. But we are to follow in his footsteps. And doing so will involve experiencing suffering in this life. You know, Christians from the past, like John Payton, understood this. They were much more familiar with suffering. It was expected. They expected that they would have to live with suffering their entire lives until the Lord took them home. And then, and only then, would suffering cease. You know, there are false gospels today that have become so popular where 
heaven on earth is promised to believers now, if only you would follow Christ. You can experience uh, fullness of life and health, wealth, blessing, all of that if only you would follow Christ. And this leads to great confusion and anxiety of soul when the opposite happens. When the things that Christ promised would happen, happen. In just a couple chapters, in Acts 14, the Apostle Paul will say, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, Paul says that. It's easy for me in the United States, in the Bible Belt, to be able to read that to you. Paul says that after being stoned and left for dead. They throw rocks at his body until he passes out, and they drag his body out of town, leave it there supposing he was dead, and he gets up, keeps going, and says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, that very common question that we ask in the face of suffering, the, the why question. Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Job, points to the appropriate time to ask that question. He says, Life on earth is fundamentally out of shape and out of order by reason of sin. And Satan makes the most he can with it. God has, so it appeared, allowed this way of things to go on for the time being. So pressures, pains, disappointments, and frustrations of all sorts await us in the future if they have not already been with us in the past. We must expect suffering and prepare for it. It is the Bible's clearest message, though many have missed it. That every Christian life can anticipate good moments being interrupted by bad ones. Joys punctuated with sorrows. And that to the very end. But, Dr. Thomas writes, We throw up our hands in horror when we suffer and ask why. The time to ask why is when all is at peace. Ease is for heaven, not earth. Ease is for heaven, not earth. So we are to expect suffering now. But one day, someday, a day will come when suffering will cease. A day will come when every tear will be wiped away, when death will be no more, when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. That day is coming. And for those of us who are still laboring on this earth, we wait for it with glad expectation. So expect suffering now, but also expect a future glorious day that will usher in a new and eternal age, one in which sickness, suffering, pain, and death is felt and feared no more. So expect suffering for now. Second thing is remember that your Lord is too wise and he is too loving to make a mistake, to get something wrong, 
to have something slip. In such times, not only expect suffering, but remember the character and nature of your God. When your eyes are too blinded by tears to clearly see, remember who he is. And in all he does, and in all he permits, he's too wise and too loving to make a mistake. John Payton says this in his autobiography. He says, uh, It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstance. But feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. Very real sorrows felt very strongly. But by God's grace, this man had been given the assurance that his God and Father was too wise and too loving to make a mistake. You know, you think of Job as a case study. And the suffering of Job and also his uh, enduring perseverance. He never cursed God And what's the picture we see? That God is a sovereign. He's in control. And yet he's a good and faithful father. I think the key to Job is understanding those two things together. That we are to patiently endure under suffering and draw near to our God and trust that he is in control and that he's good and loves us. James, the brother of the Lord, writes about Job In James 5.11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is passionate, uh, compassionate and merciful. So there it is, the steadfastness of Job, not despising the Lord, not cursing God, And then the compassion and mercy of the Lord. You know, as we've been working through Acts, I've been tossing out different requests and petitions that you could add to your prayer list. And I've got some more for you. One might be, Lord, when suffering comes, give me the assurance to know for certain that you are a faithful and loving father. When suffering comes, may I be steadfastly convinced that you are a gracious and loving Father. Like Patton would say, I know that you are too wise and too loving to have made a mistake here. And when that day comes, give me that confidence. You know, really, as to the why question why God allows something to happen, why he does something, why he permits something, we aren't going to know. We don't know the plan of God. We can't see all ends. The apostles in the church in Jerusalem at the arrest of Peter and the execution of James, they surely could not understand why God would permit such things to happen. John Payton couldn't understand the mystery of God either. He said, 
I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations, wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here. But this I do know and feel, that in light of such dispensations, it becomes us all to live and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. It becomes us to be faithful and to faithfully serve so that when he calls us, we'll be found working and obedient. We don't have to understand the mystery of God. That is not our role What we're called to do is to persevere and remain steadfast, even in the face of the incomprehensibility of God. And I believe that this, too, is a grace that we must pray for. Give me steadfastness. Give me assurance. Give me perseverance. Allow me to look up and to see your face, Lord, that in seeing you, I would draw near and continue in the work you've called me to. Father, allow me to stick close to you, to draw near, to lay my head on your breast, even in seasons of acute suffering and pain. I think that has to be one of the greatest marks of Christian maturity, is in the throes of suffering and pain to nestle in close to the God who is sovereign over that pain. We aren't going to understand right now, but his word tells us who he is and we're to remain close to him. The third and final thing to see is something that theologian J.I. Packer calls the law of harvest. You know, there's this reoccurring theme in scripture of a seed having to die if there's going to be a harvest. Right? The seed has to fall to the ground and be buried and it appears to be dead. And then a plant sprouts and brings forth harvest. We get that, right? That makes sense. You put a kernel of corn in the ground, cover it up, leave it alone. It appears to have died, but by God's design, that death produces life. Jesus speaks of this in John twelve twenty two. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the most obvious thing here in this text when we're looking at James's death is this idea of the blood of the martyrs again. James, his blood is shed, his body is buried, and yet the church only becomes stronger. It only spreads more and more. A greater harvest came, and surely the Lord was with James and gave him courage and endurance, and God allowed him to be put to death so that a greater harvest would come. This idea of a grain Dying and bearing fruit has another specific application. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 in light of, in, uh, with our own death in mind. We die, our body goes into the ground, and at the Lord's return, 
our body is raised to new life, transformed into a glorious resurrection body. Paul says that what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. So that's a major application. But what about the sufferings of the Christian life? Not just the one day, someday hope, but the the here and now. How does this idea of a seed going into the ground and dying and producing fruit, what does it what does it mean today? Well, back to Derek Thomas's commentary on Job. He cites J.I. Packer who says, every experience of pain and grief, frustration, disappointment, being hurt by others is a little death. When we serve the Savior in our world, there are many such deaths to be died. But the call to us is to endure. Since God sanctifies our endurance for fruitfulness in the lives of others. So every instance of pain, every instance of suffering, every instance of grief is a seed going into the ground. And God will bring forth from that fruitfulness in the lives of others. Fruit is not only produced later. It's produced in the lives of others. This is the reason we read Christian biographies. This is the reason that I am fed so much by reading John Payton's story. The steadfastness of other believers in the midst of trial feeds us. It encourages us. It strengthens us. My afflictions and your afflictions then aren't only, this is certainly true, as Paul would say, they aren't only preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's also an incredible benefit to watching believers. Derek Thomas continues saying, God is pleased at times to break us up into little pieces that each bit in turn may become food from which others draw nourishment and flourish. It may be his purpose that he breaks us to bits so that others may draw nourishment and flourishing from our steadfastness. Paul understood this. He can be imprisoned, bound with chains, And still say, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. What would it look like? How would it transform our lives to see every instance of pain and suffering and grief and frustration as a seed planted that would produce fruit in the lives of others? Fruit that would not only honor our Lord, but encourage and strengthen our brothers and sisters. Oh, that God would enable us to not be surprised when suffering comes. And to trust in his wisdom and goodness and fatherly kindness and draw near to him. And also know that he is able 
to sanctify our patient endurance through suffering and produce a harvest in the lives of others. That's something that only he can do. And by his grace, we would be able to see it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do not like suffering. We are not comfortable with it. This idea of getting something that we do not want or not getting something that we do very much want. Father, we're averse to it. We avoid it. Father, I pray that not only would we be those who expect it because we hear the words of our Lord and believe them, but Father, would we be those who see suffering as such an opportunity, an opportunity to draw near to you and an opportunity to strengthen and encourage watching brothers and sisters. Father, I know it is so easy for us to talk about this now. It's easy for me to say when I'm not in that season. But Father, I trust that you will give every single one of us the strength we need when that season comes. We might feel completely unprepared now, but Father, we trust that you will give us what we need in that season. We leave the rest to you. Father, continue your work in us. Use us as you will for your glory and for the good of your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.